What's up, everybody? Thanks so much for checking out the SCFYA podcast. SCFYA is the College and Young Adult Ministry of South Tampa Fellowship Church in Tampa, Florida. We meet every Monday night for the city, our weekly worship gathering. We are a family that's committed to following Jesus together in our city, and we would love for you to join us. For more information about how you can get involved, check us out on Instagram at STF underscore YA. Thanks for listening. Hey, if you've got a Bible, 1 Samuel chapter 16. 1 Samuel chapter 16. And while you are turning there, uh, I want to read to us a couple verses we actually read last week. Just kind of get us going, kind of prime the pump tonight uh, and get us into uh, the right mindset um, before we go any further. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, uh, as you turn to 1 Samuel chapter 16, uh, it says this, love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. It is not boastful. It is not arrogant. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not irritable and does not keep a record of wrongs. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but it rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. So last week, we started this new series here on uh, Monday nights called XOXO, and really the whole desire of the series has been to talk about love and relationships. And, you know, last week, we really kind of kicked the, the, the series off by making the point that in a series on love and in a series on relationships, I think for many of us, the, 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 the initial kind of like impetus for us is to immediately start talking about other people. Um, immediately start talking about the person that we want to be in a relationship with, the person we want to fall in love with, the person we want to be close friends with. But the reality is that um, we can't really talk about relationships with other people until we first and foremost talk about the relationship we have with ourselves. We said last week that um, personal problems become relationship problems when we don't deal with personal problems personally. And so as you're going to see over the next few weeks, we are going to continue to talk about relationships with other people. But as we do, uh, we're really going to lean into ourselves and lean into what God would say about us, what God would say about our hearts and our brokenness and our sin and ultimately how that affects the people that are around us. And so last week we talked about, you know, we all enter into relationships because all of us are seeking and searching for love. That's been hardwired into us because we're made in the image of God. And so because of that, we desire and long for love. The problem, though, is that when two people who are looking for love look for that love in one another, they ultimately end up being two people who suck love from one another as opposed to give love to one another. And we said that you need a source of love in order to actually be a source of love. And that source of love has to come outside of you, mainly from Jesus. And we live in a culture that has opinions about love and opinions about relationships, but a lot of times those opinions are just that. They're opinions, and they, and they ultimately sometimes lead to hurt rather than to health. So that was last week. You need a source of love in order to be a source of love. To get started tonight, I've got a question for you. Um, how many of you have ever had mold in your house? Anybody ever had mold in your house just by a show of hands? Yeah? So let me tell you guys a story about me and Rachel. Um, when we uh, bought our first house... Um, we bought this little old fixer-upper in Land Lakes, Florida. Uh, some of you are like, where is that? It's basically Georgia. Um, uh, and I come from there every day, so it, it shows how much I love you. But Land Lakes, Florida, uh, known for a couple things. Um, uh, first, nudist colonies. Yep, 
nudist colonies. Your boy was a pizza delivery guy for his first job. And let me tell you, we did not have any limits on where we delivered. And so that's Land Lakes for you in a nutshell. <laughs> and so uh, I, we bought this little house and we knew there was going to be some issues with it moving into it. We knew it was a fixer upper. And so we came in and put a fresh coat of paint on it and, um, and, uh, and you know, d- rearranged like the way stuff was, did a little bit of different stuff in the flooring, all that good jazz. And uh, we thought we kind of had it at a place where it was good for us, right? It wasn't perfect, but it was good. It was livable. It was, it was great for our, for our first house. And after we'd been there for about a year, uh, some weird things started to happen. Um, first, th- we started, like, every time we were in the house, we would, like, um, get this, like, sense of, like, mugginess. You all know what I'm talking about? Like, you just feel it in the air. You can cut it with a knife. Like, we just kind of felt this mugginess in there. And we'd wake up every night, and Rachel and I would both have, like, be, like, hacking up a lung, like, coughing. Like, it was just nasty. And, and then we started to notice that um, on our wall, we would find condensation. Like, we'd find, like, water on the wall and be like, that's weird. Like, why is the water, like, the wall sweating? Um, and, and, and then we, we, we started to uh, see that there was condensation filling in on like the vents where the air would come out of. Um, and then one night I was walking into our living room and as I was walking from our kitchen to our living room over our wood floor, um, there was a little bit of bounce in my step. And I realized this is like a waterbed, but on the floor. And as I kind of pushed up and down, water began to kind of seep through the cracks of the wood floor. And that's when I thought, okay, something's, something's happening. So um, I called uh, the only person that I knew to call, my dad, uh, and I said, hey, what do I do? And he's like, all right, you got to call like this person right here. They're going to come. They're going to take care of the water damage. I was like, awesome. Like, I know that I'm on my own and I'm supposed to be a man, but thanks, daddy. And so uh, called this guy, came through, and uh, this guy comes out. He's a flooring guy, and he's like, hey, um, hey, the issue is not your floor. And I was like, oh, okay, well, awesome. What, what is the issue? Um, and he's like, uh, well, uh, let me, let me go take a look at your, uh, air conditioning unit in your garage. So he goes out to my air conditioning unit in my garage. Um, and, uh, there's a, uh, condensation line that runs from your air conditioning unit, um, that is supposed to be not clogged. Uh, and ours was clogged and it was clogged with black mold. And so that black mold and that condensation line had obviously stopped that up. And in stopping that up, the black mold had spread into all of our air ducts throughout our entire house. And doing that, um, the water that was being produced from the air conditioning system working was now seeping not through the air conditioning unit to cool off the air, yada, yada, yada. It was seeping into our walls. And as we opened the cavity, kind of the main cavity where all the air comes in, we had a massive pool of water filling right there. So what we thought was maybe just a small minor thing ended up being thousands upon thousands of dollars, thank the Lord for insurance, that had to be used to fix it. And we came to find out that we had been living in this house for a year, and they told us that this problem had existed for almost the entire time that we had been living in this house. For almost an entire year, we had this mold growing in our air conditioning unit, and we had no idea about it until the symptoms of it began to pop up all around us. Because that's the thing about toxic situations. They can be hidden for a while, but eventually they're going to be seen. And that's true in a house with an air conditioning unit clogged with toxic mold. But that's also true in our relationships. Question for you. 
How do you know when one of your relationships is toxic? How do you know if you are in a toxic relationship? Yeah, that could be with a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a fiance or a husband or wife. That could be with a friend. That could be with a coworker or a boss or maybe your mom or dad or brother or sister. But how do you know if you're in a toxic relationship? Well, I, I believe just like that mold in my house, you know when you begin to look at the symptoms. Because even though toxic things and toxic situations can remain hidden for a time, their symptoms cannot be hidden forever. And so tonight, as we kind of continue on in this series, I want us to look at a story in Scripture that can show us and bring to light some clarity on how we can identify whether we are in relationships that are toxic, relationships that are unhealthy, relationships that are more harmful for us than helpful. And, and, and I want us to really see that ultimately the way that we will be able to determine this is going to be by looking at the symptoms of our relationship, looking at the things in our relationships that maybe we overlook, maybe we minimize, or maybe we ignore altogether. And let me tell you the heartbeat behind why we're even talking about this tonight. Um, again, it's very easy for us to come in here and to tell us what to do. Action step after action step after action step. Part of the reality of the gospel, though, is that the gospel is a diagnostic tool. So in the same way that you would go to the doctor and they would diagnose you when something is wrong, they would ask you questions, they would kind of evaluate this part of your body and that part to determine what the issue is, that's what we want to do even throughout this series. Because I think that for a lot of us, the stress and the anxiety and the hurt that exists in our life, it's a byproduct of unhealthy relationships. And that could be unhealthiness that we're bringing into relationships or unhealthiness that's being brought into relationship by somebody else. But we'll never know that if we never diagnose the situation. So that's what we want to do tonight. How are we going to do it? We're going to look at a story of two individuals who are in a very toxic relationship. And I'm just going to tell you this on the front end. Uh, what we're going to read tonight in 1 Samuel was not written in 1 Samuel so that in 2021, wow, 2022, we could sit here and go, hey, this is what a toxic relationship is or is not. But one of the beautiful things I think about Scripture is that they present us in with real stories that have real people that went through real situations that are a lot like ours. And I think that because of that, we can look into this knowing human psychology, knowing ourselves, knowing the truth of the gospel, and we can pull things from it that can help us today. So here's what's going to happen. I'm going to read quite a bit of scripture tonight from 1 Samuel. And we're going to read in chapter 16, chapter 18, and chapter 20. And I'm going to kind of bounce around in this story between a guy by the name of Saul and a guy by the name of David. And so we're going to spend probably a few minutes just kind of reading through this scripture. I'll take a step back every now and then explain what's going on. And then when we get through with all of it, we're going to take a big step back. And we're just going to kind of look at an overarching view of this relationship and its dynamics so that we can maybe see what the symptoms of toxic relationships are. So 1 Samuel chapter 16, I'm going to start reading in verse 14. And it says this. Now the Spirit of the Lord had left Saul. 
and an evil spirit sent from the Lord began to torment him. So Saul's servant said to him, you see that an evil spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord command your servants here in your presence to look for someone who knows how to play the lyre. That's like, um, like what we saw Jonathan playing up here, basically. Um, whenever the evil spirit from God comes on you, the person can play the lyre and you'll feel better. And then Saul commanded his servants, find me someone who plays well and bring him to me. One of the young men answered, well, I've seen a son of Jesse of Bethlehem who knows how to play the lyre. He's a valiant man. He's a warrior. He's eloquent. He's handsome. It's like a job description for me in there. And the Lord is with him. Uh, then Saul dispatched messengers to Jesse and said, send me your son David who is with the sheep. So Jesse took out a donkey, loaded it with bread and a wineskin and one young goat and sent them his son David to Saul. And when David came to Saul and entered his service, Saul loved him very much and Saul became his armor bearer. David became his armor bearer. And then Saul sent word to Jesse, let David remain in my servants for he has found favor with me. And whenever the spirit from God came on Saul, David would pick up his lyre and play and Saul would be relieved, feel better and the evil spirit would leave him. Okay, a couple things we're kind of getting going here. Who are the players in the story? We have David and we have Saul. Now, if you grew up in church, you've probably heard of David. He's the guy who killed, the, he'll, killed Goliath, the giant, that kind of thing. Um, but Saul, in this context, he's the king of Israel. He's the leader. He's the one who's in charge over everybody. David, he's just kind of a young dude that lives out in the country and he watches sheep. Nothing special about him. But what this story is going to show us is that God ultimately has plans for David, and it's for him to be king over all of Israel. But that's not happening yet. So we have Saul, king of Israel. We have David, kind of a young dude from the country, watches sheep. What's going on here? Well, there's this verse that starts out this section that really sticks out to me, and I wonder if it stuck out to you. And it's verse 14 that says, Now the Spirit of the Lord had left Saul. That's interesting. And an evil spirit sent from the Lord began to torment him. That's even more interesting. Why would God send an evil spirit to torment somebody? This is what happens when you read the Old Testament, guys. You get weird stuff that comes out of here. Now, I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this. Like, it, it's not the main point of this story, but we have to, like, we're not going to just jump over it and not address it. And I think it's actually important, ultimately, to what we're talking about tonight within this relational dynamic between Saul and David. A couple things. When the biblical author here uses the phrase, sent from the Lord, um, I think my first assumption is that this evil spirit, whatever it is, it originates in God. Right, that like God took it out of his house and dropped it off at the front door of Saul's house. But here's the thing. What we have to understand is that this phrase that we read here where it says um, that the Lord sent an evil spirit to him, it, it's actually, the, the better translation is that, uh, is this idea of allowing or permitting. So, so what we're seeing here is that God is allowing or he's permitting this evil spirit, again, whatever it is, to enter into Saul's life. In other words, uh, he just didn't stop it from coming. But still, you might be wondering, okay, well, like, why would God not stop something evil that's stepping into Saul's life? Well, we got to look at what the author means when he says evil spirit. See, the Hebrew word for evil is the word ra'ah. And it basically is the way of talking about anything that is the antithesis or opposite of God. So that can be like moral evil, right? Like stealing and lying and killing and cheating and those kinds of things. But, but it also can talk about anything 
that is bad in general, anything that is not according to God's design. So you have to look at the context of what we're reading and see what's actually happening when an evil spirit enters into Saul's life. And what we see is that as we're going to watch throughout this story, every time this evil spirit enters into Saul's life, there is one particular thing that it brings to him. And that one particular thing is anxiety. We're going to see as we read the story that Saul, because of this evil spirit, he begins to get anxious all the time to question things. Which again, like, again, I don't feel like God's off the hook yet. Like, like, why would God cause Saul to be anxious? Well, I don't think that he is causing Saul to be anxious, and here's why. Remember, God is allowing this spirit to come upon him. So why would he allow that? Well, think about this. Um, God has given Saul, just like me and you, the freedom to use his mind however he wants. He can think about what he wants to think about. He can dwell on whatever he wants to dwell on. He can focus on whatever he wants to focus on. I, I love, like, Paul, like, way later in Scripture, he, he kind of picks up on this idea that we have the freedom to think on our own. When he says, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is praiseworthy— dwell or think about or focus on these things, kind of the underlying assumption there is that we have the ability to not focus on those things. So again, what's going on here? Well, you see, because God is not controlling, controlling Saul's thoughts, um, Saul is finding himself focusing and fixating on lies that are just not true. He's becoming paranoid that he's going to lose his kingdom. He's becoming paranoid that he's no longer going to be king of Israel. And this paranoia is a byproduct of actually Saul's disobedience. You see, in 1 Samuel chapter 8, Saul does something very explicitly that God tells him not to do. And if he does it, he will no longer be king. And he straight up does it. So he creates this kind of idea in his mind that he is not going to be king because of what he has done. This anxiety begins to overwhelm him. So the evil spirit in this text, it's this wave of anxiety that's brought on by Saul's own actions to rule and to lead without God in control. That's what's going on here. So what does that have to do with our relationships? We have to see that Saul's toxic relationship that we're going to see play out here in a minute it's the byproduct of Saul's own emotional toxic relationship with himself. Again, personal problems become relational problems when personal problems are not dealt with personally. And don't, don't mishear what I'm saying look here, okay? Like, am I saying that Saul's anxiety created toxicity in his relationship with David? Yes. Am I saying that all anxiety creates toxicity in relationships with other people? No. Emphatically. No. There is a very particular type of anxiety that Saul is, is, is experiencing in this moment. And it's an anxiety that's being brought on by his own destructive decisions. You see, if you're an anxious person because of your own destructive decisions, chances are you're going to tell yourself destructive stories about other people in your life. And that's very, very different 
from having anxiety because of maybe something that might be off in your mind. That's the inside of Saul in this moment. So he has this wave of anxiety. And oh, by the way, God sends him somebody to help ease this anxiety. David comes and he's able to play this music that apparently is able to ease Saul's mind. But over time, though, because of this anxiety, because of this like uh, constant questioning, Saul begins to believe something that's wrong about David. And he begins to let toxicity creep into his relationship with David. Let me show you what I mean. Look, look a chapter ahead in 1 Samuel 18, verse 5. It says, David marched out with the army, and he was successful in everything that Saul sent him to do. Saul put him in command of the fighting men, which pleased all the people and Saul's servants as well. And as the troops were coming back, when David was returning from killing the Philistine, this is, uh, this is um, uh, Goliath, the women came out from the cities of Israel and met King Saul, singing and dancing with tambourines and shouts of joy and three-stringed instruments. And they said this, the women sang, Saul has killed his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. And Saul was furious and resented this song. They credited tens of thousands to David, he complained, but they only credited me with thousands? A little petty. What more can, we ha- can this man have except for the kingdom? So Saul watched David jealously from that day forward. And then the next day, oh, what happens? The evil spirit sent from God came powerfully on Saul. What's going on here? He has this anxiety that all of a sudden David is going to come in and take his kingdom. This wave of anxiety hits him, and it says that David was playing the lyre as usual, but Saul was holding a spear. And he threw it, thinking, I'll pen David to the wall. (laughs) I love the Bible. (laughs) I just, like, imagine this. Like, he's just playing his instrument, and Saul's just sitting there with that spear, like, you think in mind, he's like, he's like, if I throw it now, you think he'll see me? Now I think he'll see me? And throws it. My favorite part is this. David got away from him twice. So David gets a spear thrown at him. He's like, whoa. Oh, like, gosh, guys, the Bible. Uh, don't say it's boring. Anyways, verse 12. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David, but he had left Saul. And therefore Saul sent David away from him and made him a commander over a thousand men. David led the troops and continued to be successful in all his activities because the Lord was with him. When Saul observed that David was very successful, he dreaded him. But all of Israel and Judah loved him and because he was leading their troops. And Saul told David, here's my oldest daughter, Mirba. I'll give you to her as your wife. And if you'll be a warrior for me and you'll fight all the Lord's battles. And Saul was thinking, I don't need to raise a hand against him. The hands of the Philistines will be against him. All right, so, so what's happening here? Okay, so Saul's getting threatened. He, he begins to tell himself this story in his mind because of his own bad decisions that he has anxiety that he's going to lose his kingdom. All of a sudden, this guy David comes in and he's threatened. Right? David's going into the battle, and people are saying, Saul's killed his thousands, David is tens of thousands. Saul's starting to get really upset. He's starting to fume. So he's like, I got to take care of this. I got to do something about this. So first, he throws a spear at him. 
twice, apparently. That doesn't work. Then he decides, okay, I'm going to get my, my, my daughter involved, and, and what we're going to do is I'm going to get him a little closer to the family, and then I'm going to send him off into battle, and I'll let this enemy, the Philistines, I'll let them take care of him. Like, this is what he's beginning to do. He's creating in his mind, he's creating these scenarios where he's going to the furthest extent because of his opinions and his perception of his relationship with David. He has completely let toxicity step in. So what does that have to do with us? Because I don't know about you, but um, maybe you have. Uh, I don't know if any of us have ever been in so toxic a relationship that we've attempted to end that person's life. If you have, awesome. J. Mike will be up here later. You can talk to him about that. But I think this is where many of us have been when it comes to relationships. Many of us have been in places in relationships where, based upon what is happening within that relationship, um, it's putting us in a place where people we once cared for are all of a sudden becoming our enemy. Like, you didn't always have that relationship with your mom, but you do now. You and your girlfriend were really great that first year you dated. But now it feels like you're stuck and you can't stand each other. Those friends you had when you first moved here, you're just not as close to them anymore. And and you don't really even want to be close to them anymore. Why is that? How can we go in a relationship from being in love with somebody, and I'm not just talking a romantic love, in a place where we would literally die for that person to being in a place where we could care less if that relationship is maintained at all. That only happens when toxicity moves into a relationship. So here's what I'm going to do the rest of the night. We've read that story of David and Saul. I want to take a step back, and I want to contrast two things. I want to contrast what we read earlier in 1 Corinthians 13 about what love actually is. And I want to contrast that with the relational dynamic we see with Saul and David. Because I think that in Saul and David we see a toxic relationship, but in this passage in 1 Corinthians 13 we see the epitome of what love is. And we talked last week about how love is the foundational element of a healthy relationship. And again, this is not all-encompassing. This is not maybe every single attribute and thing that you can think through and recognize in a relationship. And ultimately, I don't want this to even be a time when you're thinking about what other other people are doing wrong to you. I want this to continue to be a time of introspection for us. Because the reality is, if we brought Saul up on this stage in the middle of this dynamic with David and we asked him, what's the issue in your relationship? You know whose fault it would be? Not Saul's. It'd be David's. And the biggest tendency we have, especially sitting in this context, when we hear someone talking from God's word, especially when we lean into sin, is to think the whole time about somebody else's sin. But the gospel is not speaking to other people in this room. It's speaking to you in this room. So what does a toxic relationship look like? Three things I want you to see from this story. First is this. Toxic relationships ignore facts. Healthy relationships seek truth. Toxic relationships ignore facts. Healthy relationships seek 
truth. Notice in this story that Saul ignores things that are very, very true. 1 Samuel 18, verse 8, Saul assumes that David's motive following all of his military victories is for him to take the kingdom, like he said. He's furious, and he resents the song. They credited tens of thousands to David, but they only credited me with thousands. What more can he have but the kingdom? Just a little side note, everybody. Um, you want to know very clearly how a relationship is turned toxic is you can't be happy for another person's successes because their successes look like a threat to you. Oh, there's a reason why they got that promotion at work. I mean, they didn't really deserve it. They just like, they just like really kiss up to the boss. Oh, there's a reason why they got into that apartment. Like their daddy helped them out and they just, you know, they're never going to learn responsibility. The Bible says to rejoice with those who rejoice, to weep with those who weep. But you can't rejoice with someone who's a threat to you. And people become threats to us when we ignore the truth in life around us and we start to elevate the falsehood that's around us. We talk about this a lot, how so much of our life and, and the sin and the brokenness that we attribute to this world is a byproduct of us believing things that are not true. That's how the enemy works. He speaks lies. He twists the words of God. But that's not what love actually does. That's not what a healthy relationship actually does. 1 Corinthians 13, 6 says, love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but it rejoices in the truth. So what does that mean for us? <clears throat> it means that we know our relationships are turning toxic when we begin to ignore the clear facts that are present in a relationship, we elevate lies and we minimize the truth. And again, I think that like if I'm having a dialogue with myself right now, I'm thinking, I'm saying, okay, but like, but they did say this about me, and like they really did go out last weekend and do that, and like they they've said things that they demonstrate they do not care about my feelings, and and they've completed me. They've treated me completely different since I made those mistakes last year. Like, like, that's why our relationship is the way that it is today, Chris. Not because of me ignoring facts. Like, those are the facts that are the relationship. Here's what I want to challenge us with tonight. I'm going to come back to this over and over. We have every right to judge the actions of somebody. And when I say judge, I mean to see their actions and to make determining um, um, understandings about someone because of their actions. Here's what none of us have the ability to do. None of us have the right to judge motives. And yeah, maybe those things are all legitimate, the things that someone has done to you. But have you ever asked yourself why that was done to you? Why did they say those things that were harsh to you? Why did they all of a sudden start making decisions that you didn't agree with? Why did they think it was necessary to talk about you behind your back? Again, 
I don't know the answers to that, and I don't think you do either. But if love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but it rejoices in the truth, if we're committed to truly loving someone, like we talked about last week, this type of love that was shown to us in the gospel, it means that we seek to love people in the middle of them sinning against us and in the middle of them doing things that hurt us. Because that's what Jesus did for us. The gospel is a message that says that as we were hurting the creator of the universe with our decision to take the breath he had put into our lungs and to use that for us and not for him, to use that ultimately for destruction and not for life, he did not give up. He moved towards. And and I just wonder how many of us, when it comes to certain relationships that we're in, um, how many of us are ignoring the plain facts in that relationship instead of seeking out the truth in that relationship? Like, are we minimizing the destructive patterns that we're drawn to when we're with this particular type of people? Because those are the facts. Are, are we minimizing the type of person that we become when we're with him or when we go out with her? You see, when we see this dynamic with Saul and David, we see a dynamic where Saul begins to just elevate these lies and to ignore the plain facts that are in front of him. And in doing that, he doesn't ever seek out the truth with David. So we can't have a relationship that's founded on that truth. And see, where this gets super complicated is when we enter into conflict in relationships. Because I think that for many of us, we might think that conflict is a sign of a toxic relationship. Conflict is a sign of an immature relationship. That's actually not true. The sign of a healthy, mature relationship is not the absence of conflict, but what you do in the presence of conflict. The most mature relationship you can have in this universe is a relationship with the creator of the universe. And let me tell you something. There was conflict that kept you from having that. And he did something about it. So so here's the second thing I I want us to just ponder tonight. When conflicts enter relationships, do you seek to retaliate or be reconciled? Because toxic relationships, they settle for retaliation, but healthy relationships, they work for reconciliation. You see, when conflict arises, it can be... um, it can create bitterness really, really quickly in a relationship. And bitterness is one of the, the most uh, secretive um, and subversive enemies to a relationship because you can be in the presence of someone and contain bitterness in your heart and it not change your disposition towards them in any capacity whatsoever. Another way of saying that is that we can be fake. You can be super bitter towards your dad and still go home and have dinner with him and smile and say everything's okay. Yeah, you make some jokes that your dad sucks and that he did this to you and he wasn't there for you, but I just, that's okay. That's just, that's just your dad. Not your bitterness talking. 
no, yeah, like my, my boyfriend, like he says these things about me and he's just kidding. Like it's not that big of a deal. Like, no, you're bitter. No, like these friends, like no, they're, they're cool. Like, yeah, like they're very de- like deprecating to me and they put me down a lot. But like it's all right. Like it's just kind of how like we like. And see, when bitterness seeps in, in our attempt to minimize it, what we do that many of us find therapeutic is that we try to process it with other people. But here's the problem. Um, in an attempt to process it with other people, what we actually find ourselves doing is not working towards reconciliation in a broken relationship, but finding ways to retaliate in a relationship. You see, in David and Saul's relationship, David retaliated, or sorry, Saul retaliated in a violent way. And I don't think that many of us, we resort to physical violence for retaliation. But we might resort to social violence, emotional violence. You see, when, when there's a healthy way to deal with conflict in a relationship, and there's a toxic way to deal with it. See, the toxic way to deal with um, conflict in a relationship is to talk about someone's sin, talk about the way that someone has hurt you to other people around you. The healthy way is to talk to that person about their sin, to talk to them about the ways that they might be hurting you. You see, I think that many of us, we might be drawn to that unhealthy, toxic way because um, ultimately, when you're hurt in a relationship, think about this. What does the feeling of hurt bring up in you? When you're hurt, why is hurt hurt so bad? It hurts because it isolates you. You're the one that was broken up with. You're the one that those things were said about. You're the one that was left out. And so what do we do to cope with that? We bring other people into our hurt. Look, look, at, what, look at what he sent me. This is what she did to me. Can you believe they said this about me? And in an attempt for us to cope with the hurt that we're experiencing. We're not actually doing anything to reconcile a broken relationship. We're just retaliating in a creative way. Because what we're doing is we're now creating enemies for someone. And these enemies are hurt. And because of their hurt, they now can lash out and they can be angry and they can be bitter and they can be frustrated. But the irony is that their hurt is not actually from that person. It's from you. I don't want to minimize that because I do that and I understand the propensity for us to do that. And see, I think that we see in this story, in this dynamic with Saul and with David, that like in Saul's because ultimately that's where he is. Like he's hurt because he doesn't want to lose his kingdom. And so he's assuming all these things about David that are not true. And in doing that, what does he do? He retaliates against David. He doesn't try to reconcile anything with David. He just works against David. 
retaliation might give you the upper hand in a relationship. But the irony is that you think that in retaliating, you put them now in a prison. There is somebody in prison, but it's not them, it's you. Because you can't walk in a room and see them and not be frustrated. They can't be brought up in a conversation without you burning hot red. No, your lack of forgiveness is not withholding anything from them. It's withholding everything from you. And that's the opposite of the gospel. 1 Corinthians 13 again. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It's not boastful. It's not arrogant. It's not rude. It's not self-seeking. It's not irritable. It does not keep a record of wrongs. Do you know what it means to not keep a record of wrongs? It means that you don't identify somebody based upon the ways that they have sinned against you or around you. No record of wrongs. The gospel says that the Lord has forgotten our sin as far as the east is from the west. So do you realize that when you hold sin over somebody else's head, you are putting yourself in a position that God doesn't even put himself in? Because in Christ, that person has the ability to be forgiven. In Christ, they have the ability to have every single thing they have done wrong washed white as snow. And the creator of the universe has every right to hold them accountable to that. And he's held them accountable through his death on their behalf. So why would we not do the same? Do we retaliate or do we seek to reconcile? And see, ultimately, this all is about our mindset within a relationship. And this is the third and the final thing tonight that I want us to see about a toxic relationship. You see, a toxic relationship, it, it ignores facts and, and it doesn't seek out the truth. And, and, a, and, a, and a toxic relationship, it, it, it has this like tendency to retaliate and not seek to be reconciled. But ultimately, all of this comes down to one final thing. And that's that a toxic relationship, it always assumes the worst. But a healthy relationship believes the best. Verse 12 of chapter 18 of 1 Samuel, Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David. The Lord had left Saul, and what that means is that the anointing that Saul had on his life as king was no longer there. That was a clear thing. Scripture says that that happened. It was a byproduct of Saul's own decisions in his life. But when Saul saw the anointing of God on somebody else, he became threatened. He was afraid of David because the Lord was with David, but he had left Saul. What did he assume in this moment? I think what Saul assumed was that God had left him completely. That there was no hope for redemption, that there was no hope for reconciliation, that there, there was no hope for anything. But the reality is, it was God who orchestrated David coming into contact with Saul. So God was still working in the midst of Saul. It was just through a different way. And here's the problem. Because the relationship had gone toxic, Saul assumed the worst instead of believing the best.
when 1 Corinthians 13 says that love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things, what it's saying is that when love is present in a relationship, we recognize in that relationship that we're in a relationship with another sinner. They're going to mess up. They're going to hurt us. They're going to let us down. But because we have the love of Christ that is operating in and through us, we have the ability to believe the best about them and their actions and not assume the worst. And this goes back to what I was talking about earlier. See, we are going to see what people do. And they're going to do things around us that hurt us, that we don't agree with. And they're going to do things to us that hurt us and we don't agree with. But when that happens, are we believing the best for them or are we assuming the worst about them? Because you're never going to actually see the reality of someone until you see the reality of them. If you put somebody on a pedestal and you assume that they wouldn't hurt you or hurt those around you, when they do, you're going to be severely disappointed. So when you look at people around you, when you look at your relationships, and when you look at things that are done to you or done around you, are you assuming the worst in those contexts or are you believing for the best? And this is not an attempt to minimize things that have been done to significantly hurt us. I'm just saying that believing the best means that we might just see that the sin that characterizes somebody's decision is not something that we should identify them as. Because the gospel, this love we're basing our love off of, it's a relationship that has every right to identify you and I because of our sin. It's a relationship that has every right to identify us as a byproduct of our actions, and yet it doesn't. Not because our actions are not significant and not because our sin is not great against God, but because there has been something that has been done about our sin. Our sin has been taken care of in Jesus. So again, why would we hold over somebody else what Jesus would not hold over them?